Well, you know, I think that our profession is mistaken if they believe that people in, in Canada and the provinces are going to tolerate a legal system that they functionally have no access to in the name of preserving a monopoly for lawyers. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. So I get to boss Dana around a lot. She does. She's just, you know, she's a monster, as we like to say. (laughs) She's really not. Um, So today we have quite a get in terms of our guests. We do. You had a conversation with the Attorney General of BC, David Eby, who became AG in July of 2017 and has some really interesting things to say. This uh, this Attorney General, I think, is uh, most people in BC, whether they agree with what he's doing or not, would say is a little bit of a different Attorney General. For a start, his background, and we'll talk about this a little bit, is in poverty law. He worked with Pivot Law Legal Society, which is one of our personal favorite legal advocacy organizations working in Vancouver's downtown East Side, and he has a solid background in anti-poverty work, which really motivates what he's trying to do. Now, I'm going to just give a little bit of background, because as Dana has pointed out to me, some of what we talk about is a little dense, unless you know (laughs) what the context is here. So I'm going to do a little down and dirty piece of background. First of all, we talk about legal aid in the province of British Columbia. There has been a long history of legal aid cuts in BC, just like there has been in other Canadian provinces. But in February 2018, there was actually a big increase. And there's more money promised over the next two years. So more money is always needed. But when David Eby appointed another friend of NSRLP, Jamie McLaren, who runs Pro Bono Access BC, to do a legal aid review this winter, this wasn't so much about money but it was about how that money was going to get spent. And we don't, at the time we're recording, have any word yet on formal outcomes, but there are going to be hints in the interview about how the Attorney General wants to think about how that money can be spent in a way that gives the greatest number of people some kind of access to legal assistance. We also talked about the question of pro bono hours for lawyers, which has become a very contentious issue Mm -hmm. in British Columbia. Um, I think that we talked a little bit about this in a blog at the end of last year. And the whole question of whether lawyers should be required, no option, to contribute pro bono hours, in other words, hours when they are not paid for their services, to people who don't otherwise have legal resources. David Eby supported this. He actually went to the Law Society's AGM in December to encourage this, and he talks about it there. But the BC Law Society did not accept that proposal, and we talk a little bit in this interview about what's next in terms of pro bono hours. We also, of course, talk about something that's going to be a bit of a theme this season, Mm -hmm. which is paralegal practice. We are continuing to see this crawling forward in Ontario since the Law Society accepted the Boncalo report proposal in BC. A proposal came from a Law Society working group on what they are calling alternative legal service providers. Interesting choice of uh, nomenclature here, not paralegals, almost as if the word paralegal has become (laughs) some kind of toxic brand. 
And in fact, we have a future episode in this season where I talk with Nancy Merrill, who chaired that group and is now the president of the BC Law Society and trying to get this pushed forward. Now, in December last year, AGEB took a very interesting preemptive step, which we're going to talk about in this interview. It was clear that the Law Society were very split on whether or not they were going to accept this proposal to expand paralegal practice to some family matters. But he took the step of amending the Legal Profession Act, which is, if you like, the shell legislation, and renaming it the Legal Professions, z, plural. <laughs> I know Dana says it's important that we explain to people well, because, there's an S there. Well, I didn't quite get it at first, <laughs> and you had to explain how momentous this is, <laughs> because he's basically encompassing all legal professionals, not just lawyers. Right, and the other class of legal professionals that he is preemptively including would be licensed paralegals. At the moment, paralegals in British Columbia can only work under the supervision of a lawyer, and this would make them their own class of legal services. Very important for access to justice. Now, of course, as uh, AGEB explains in my conversation, he still doesn't have the final say in what this scope of practice looks like. That's gone back to the Law Society. But let's just say this was a very interesting shot across the bowels, but it's a very interesting strategic move that maybe we'll see in other provinces, depending upon how hard government wants to press the legal profession to get with the program. He also makes some brief references to the limits on small claims court, which I know for some of our access to justice advocates is a very important issue. In other words, they've been arguing that they should be set higher. So with that brief primer in mind, hopefully my interview with the Attorney General of British Columbia will make good sense to people, and I hope you enjoy listening. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. You have, I think, lots to talk about that is of great interest to the people who listen to this podcast, who include not only people inside the justice system in Canada and abroad, but also members of the public. It's going to be a great conversation. I hope that I can get some really interesting information out of you and that we can have a good discussion. So when you were appointed Attorney General in 2017, you received a mandate letter, which I plowed through the other day, which I have to say would be very daunting, I think, to most people, <laughs> the number of things that you were mandated to do in that letter. And it included an instruction to improve and support legal aid, including First Nations legal services, dispute resolution services for families, and expanded poverty law services to increase access to justice. So that's where I really want to focus. And sure. in the first place, at the end of last year, you ordered a review of legal aid in the province to be conducted by Jamie McLaren, who's a very good friend of the NSRLP and head of Pro Bono BC. What are the specific problems that you see with the current legal aid provision? And, you know, assuming that we know that BC is in the same position as all the other provinces, very limited for family and civil, and what are the problems that you're hoping this particular review might fix? Well, the history of Legal aid in BC for many people starts in 2002 when uh, there were massive cuts to the provincial legal aid program. The previous government had uh, been increasing legal aid spending. There were clinics, there were phone services, there was uh, 
legal aid far beyond what were understood to be the constitutional minimums. And then uh, there were dramatic cuts in 2002 to the extent that the then Attorney General was censured by the Law Society. So a lot of people's mm. stories kind of start then, mm-hmm. as does mine. The issue in BC was following those cuts. Legal aid has been on life support for basically right. the last 16 years. Yeah. And so our government putting $30 million in over the next three years is, a, as you say, uh, the biggest legal aid increase in 16 years. I mean, that's not saying a lot. And so uh, the goal of Mr. McLaren's report was not to reproduce work that's been done in the past about what's no. called the tariff level, you know, kind of informally here, which mm-hmm, is how much lawyers mm-hmm, get paid mm-hmm. per hour to work on legal aid. But to address how we best spend that thirty million dollars to increase access to justice. So, do you have? I mean, I appreciate that this is all in process, though, and and you know you want to be careful about what you say. But I'm wondering, do you yourself have any preferred solutions here, like the increased use of technology, which I know Legal Services BC has been very keen on on ramping up, limited service certificates, perhaps. Do you have any particular? preferred solutions that you're hoping might come out of Jamie's review? Well, there, in, in terms of access to justice broadly, uh, there are a couple pieces that I am a big believer in. One is in the need for the profession to step up and identify opportunities for increasing access to justice, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we can talk about that later on. But in terms of Mr. McLaren's uh, work specifically around what government can do and what we can support, I came up through practicing basically anti-poverty in, in the law, yeah. Poverty yeah. law and and I saw the amazing work done by what sprung up in the absence of government legal aid funding, yes. which was clinics involving advocates, mostly yes. not lawyers, maybe with a volunteer lawyer. And they do a huge amount of anti-poverty yes. advocacy work. And I'm a big believer in that model. And with just a few more resources, they could be a better resource. They could mm. take on far more clients and provide a huge difference. So I'm a big believer in that clinical model. And that's also yes. why I chose Mr. McLaren to do this work. His work at Access Pro Bono, like uh, they uh, do an exceptional job of providing meaningful legal advice and advocacy for people. And yes. I am all for legal information, which is, you know, here's a book about the topic. Here's mm-hmm. a website mm-hmm. with information about it. And which we actually know that that. represented litigants often say they have more need for legal information than they have for substantive legal advice. It's the legal information part that trips people up over and over and over again. We see that all the time. It's very difficult for most of the people that I've ever worked with to make useful uh, outcomes out of a book or a website that gives them legal information. They just need someone to to walk them through how to fill out the form and maybe stand the president in court and get their things in order for the judge. So I'm a big believer in that. And and, uh, so delivering legal services to people as opposed to legal information. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And one of the things that you just alluded to, I'd, I'd like to just quickly take you back to, was obviously this review is about the government's response you said you also thought that the profession should be stepping up, and, and I want to talk about paralegals in a moment, but of course the other huge debate that happened in BC at the end of last year was over pro bono hours. When you say you want the profession to step up, because you know we are now in a situation where most people in Canada can't afford lawyers, does that mean pro bono or does that mean different models of legal services? So there were a couple of votes at our Law Society AGM recently, and both on the topic of access to justice. One was in relation to certified paralegals that would be overseen by the law society that would deliver. And I'd like to come back to that. Yep. Yeah, uh, had said would deliver family law services. The other was around uh, mandatory pro bono, uh, that lawyers could either do three hours of pro bono work or pay some money in to a fund so that their lawyers were paid. They essentially buy their way out of the obligation. 
uh, they felt their time was better used some other way. And one of the proposals went so far as to say that lawyers would accept referrals from the legal aid service agency, LSS, the Legal Services Society here in BC, and they would do minor criminal or family matters and would assist people. And, and that's how they would discharge that obligation. So it was very, very disruptive proposal. People found a thousand reasons why it wouldn't mm-hmm. work, why it was offensive, why it was a problem, why there was actually no problem there, and it was entirely government's responsibility. And on, mm-hmm. on, I went to the Law Society meeting and provided opening remarks saying that I really hoped that the profession would give these proposals a shot. Still of the belief there's more can do as a profession, and that government's role is certainly important, but government by itself and now they've seen uh, both political parties. Uh, a lot of the advocacy is for an increase of about $100 million a year in legal aid funding. Mm-hmm. That has not happened in the last 20 years that I'm aware of in Canada. And it is very unlikely to happen when governments are struggling with things like right. addiction, mental health, housing, and so on, health care right. expenses, and so on. No, it's sending a very important signal. But the consequence of that vote was that the society passed what I, you know, I would refer to as a slightly woolly, vague resolution that they would do everything to encourage lawyers to do pro bono, but in fact, they did step away from actually requiring them to do it. That's right. That's so right. Both your proposals prof- were defeated. You know, your effort to persuade the legal profession that they had a responsibility as well as government didn't really pan out there. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Okay, well, look, let's move on to paralegals, you know, as if there's a really good story coming there, but that was a joke, by the way, sorry. <laughs> so you, you really hit the headlines in November. I mean, I can actually remember where I was sitting. I was in the UK, I was in London, when I read that you had gone ahead and amended the Legal Professions Act, renaming it the Legal Professions Act, ahead of the vote, which, as you've mentioned, was being anticipated at the society on whether or not that members of the Law Society would agree to the idea of expanding legal service providers to include a new group of licensed professionals who could offer some types of family legal services. And of course, I'm quite sure you're aware that we have already been through this whole sort of apoplectic firestorm in Ontario with, you know, remarkably similar responses to that idea from the legal profession. And you took uh, a stand, I think, in a very important political way. You went ahead and amended the legislation. Of course, this doesn't mean that suddenly there's a new group of licensed professionals because they're still licensed by the society. But you went ahead and developed the Shell legislation. And I just want to make sure that the people listening at this point understand, at this point in British Columbia, paralegals must work under the supervision of a lawyer. It's not that there aren't any paralegals, but they have to work under the supervision of the lawyer, a lawyer who which of course affects both what they can do and how they charge for their time. So that decision to amend the Shell legislation ahead of the vote, I think it's fair to say, you, you know, you might want to disagree and I want to know what you, how you explain it, was a sign that the government was prepared to push the profession towards expanding legal service providers. Faced with what looked like either a fait accompli or a big fight, the Law Society in December asked for time to consult and asked you not to go ahead and make any regulations, etc about the scope of paralegal practice until they had had that time. Some would say that it is not the business of government to tell the legal profession who should or who shouldn't deliver legal services, that they should have an exclusive authority over what legal services are defined as and who offers them. But you know the the arguments. Lawyers can't be controlled by the government, so they have to be the regulators. But what about when the profession is dragging its feet about expanding 
access to justice for people who cannot afford lawyers. What then is the proper role of the government? Well, you know, I think that our profession is mistaken if they believe that people in, in Canada and the provinces are going to tolerate a legal system that they functionally have no access to in the name of preserving a monopoly for lawyers. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And you can see it. You can see the erosion of lawyers' presence in various justice-administering bodies across mm-hmm. Canada with the mm-hmm. uh, expansion of tribunals, yes. uh, with the use of expanded jurisdiction of small claims courts, uh, uh, matters that are now in front of the Supreme Court of Canada in relation to, to Quebec's expansion of jurisdictions for their small claims court with simplified procedures and so on, so that people can attend without lawyers. What's happening is our profession is ceding territory to people just Mm -hmm. representing themselves in forums that are simplified. And there hasn't been a lot of complaints about that uh, to date. You know, so I was very pleased to get the request from the Law Society to say, look, we think there's a place for the Law Society to regulate and oversee paralegals who would practice independently on some simplified family matters, and especially focusing on areas where there are, you know, there just aren't enough family lawyers, and people can't afford family lawyers, and so it's no contest for the business. And so I got that request, and we started the legislation, and then someone uh, in the bar said that they wanted to have a vote about whether the Law Society should ask government to put it on hold. And I said, mm-hmm. just because someone's asking for a vote doesn't mean we should put it on hold. We've got this legislation we're drafting. It's going to go in the House. We've got a spot in the House. Let's do it. Let's get it in place. And if the Law Society members want to vote uh, to to do additional consultation or whatever, that's fine. But at least structure will be in place for the Mm -hmm. Law Society to do what I believe is necessary. And that means looking at ways to deliver legal services to people. And in BC, the realtors uh, lost track of the public interest in their regulation and oversight, and they lost their independent oversight of their own profession. And yep. so there is a precedent in D.C. for yep. that happening. And yep. I think the, the Law Society and the members, everybody uh, absolutely needs to keep front of their mind the public interest, not just the profession interest. Because when you lose track of the public interest, then that's when the trouble starts. And I think ultimately they're going to end up in the right place on these paralegals. And what do you think, Attorney General Eby, about the argument that we have heard so much in Ontario and now again in BC, that um, lawyers really do support access to justice. It's just that family law is so incredibly complicated that, that nobody but then can do it, and it has to be $500 an hour. So our government is working on new family rules and yeah. uh, a process. We have uh, duty counsel in court, and we have pilot program where uh, someone other than a judge, it will essentially be a master that hears a lot of matters right. uh, to get things sorted out before things go in front of a judge trying to do what we can to simplify process. I've had a lot of advocacy around establishing a family law tribunal that would be mm. a simplified, mm. uh, self-represented opportunity for people to go and get someone to just make a decision about child wow, support. Wow, that would, that would be great. Child. Yep, yep. And so, the, I mean, this is where things are going. And if the family bar and the, the lawyers don't recognize that, uh, then it's their own loss, really. That if they like the independent court system, and I do, if they like the adversarial system, and I do, um, then let's do what we can to make sure that people have access to it. And part of that means that for the cases that no lawyer wants to do anyway, having a paralegal assist someone through it. Let me ask you this. What about, and I know this is speculative and hypothetical and exactly what you don't want to be anticipating, but let's imagine, because we're sort of starting to see this happen in Ontario, that the Law Society in BC takes another couple of years before they actually produce any draft regulations. In other words, if the resistance to this just kind of 
slows the process of change down to expanding provision. What would you do? The people who would say that government has, you know, functionally currently no ability to compel the law society to do anything are absolutely right. But th- those people are mistaken if they think that government will sit by while nothing happens at mm-hmm. the profession level and allows gross injustices that are taking place uh, in family law yeah. to continue. Um, so if the profession wants to lead the way and, and show the solutions in the way that we can do that, I would encourage them to do that. And I have encouraged them to do that. And uh, we're working to try to do that with them through the revised family law rules and some of the projects and stuff uh, that we're rolling out and increased funding for duty council and all these kinds of things, increased funding for these masters and trying to resolve this issue. But there are other solutions that are there. And one of them is mm-hmm. a family law tribunal and uh, where people attend self-represented. We have a very successful civil, civil resolution tribunal model yes. that we're yeah. rolling out for car accident uh, disputes uh, in British Columbia to get some of the legal costs down. Certainly I uh, will not continue to get letters in my office from people in family disputes who are tied up for years yeah. in family court, self-represented, hearing complaints from judges and others about self-represented litigants yeah. who have no idea yeah. where to go and the injustice of yeah. that. Uh, that is a time-limited scenario. So I hope the Law Society and the members uh, are the ones that lead the way on this uh, because that's my preferred model. Okay, so the summary here is get with the program. I, I mean, the profession in many ways uh, has gotten with the program over the years, and I hope this is no exception. But get a little bit more with the program and a little bit more quickly perhaps for all those people out there who currently are struggling through the system. So when I did a little bit of background research on you, because I have to admit I didn't really know very much at all about you, the fact you were the Attorney General of British Columbia and you just drafted a Legal Professions Act, which I thought was a, an editorial stroke of genius, you've had a pretty amazing classic poverty lawyer career. You've worked at the Pivot Law Society, which, you know, a, an organization that I admire greatly, which is committed to bringing test cases on behalf of marginalized people. You, you were the executive director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. And I even noticed that you wrote a book many years ago called The Arrest Handbook, A Guide to Your Rights, which, you know, we don't need to get into it here, but actually that's a title uncannily similar to the first book that I ever wrote, <laughs> except that mine was for the there's a, there's a big demand for that kind of knowledge, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that was decades ago. So tell me, what motivates you? What, what has been your core motivation all these years for the work that you do? Um, I think that, that for me, the, the animating concern, what really gets me energized to deal with things, are, are an issue where uh, people with a significant amount of power are being unfair to people with little or no power. Uh, or that there is some sort of issue about uh, an imbalance of power or how people are being treated uh, just so unequally, whether that's money laundering where uh, Mm -hmm. allegations of very large-scale money launderers treated very differently in terms of Mm -hmm. policing and attention Mm -hmm. and allegations of welfare fraud or or low-level drug dealing. That quality between those things drives me crazy. (laughs) We can't afford lawyers are forced through the court system by themselves because – profession uh, is reluctant to license paralegals to assist them. I, you know, that kind of stuff makes me crazy. And, and I really hope that my work as attorney general can address some of the more gross examples of power imbalance in our province. And, and we've had some good success to date, but there's lots of work to do. Well, I think it makes me crazy is um, a, a motivation that I can truly relate to and one that gives me great respect for you. Thank you very much indeed for your time today, Attorney General Evie. Thank you for having me. 
So there was a lot in that conversation to kind of unpack. And um, you did, I think, a really great job off the top of this episode and kind of setting some context for some of this. But one of the things that really is a theme throughout that conversation that you had with David was, as we have both referred to it, the need for the profession to step up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he talks about his efforts to get them to at least give the mandatory pro bono concept a try, which unfortunately, you know, so far is not successful. But the, just the need for them to to recognize in some way that they've got to do something because with or without them, the public is moving on to other forms of, of legal help in wherever ways so they can true. access it. Yeah. And as David said at one point it's it's their loss if they don't kind of get on board and figure out a way to provide that according to at least somewhat their terms as opposed to having it decided for them by the public right right no I I think that's right it's so it's so funny you and I always make our own notes on what we want to highlight (laughs) in these outros and uh, just for the benefit of listeners when we compared notes just before we started recording because we always do of course we both had exactly the same first point the need for the profession to step up Mm. and obviously Attorney General E.B. was David was was very diplomatic and tactful about this but I think that the important point is that as as you say, Dana, the public are going to be voting with their feet and looking for other kinds of resources if they can't access lawyers. You only have to go on Craigslist and see the kinds of help that's being offered to people, Mm -hmm. which is more affordable. So I thought that he was pragmatic about this (laughs) and and recognizing that it's still the Law Society's call, exactly what goes into that shell legislation, the Legal Professions Act. (laughs) But the act is there. And I think that... You know, we've often talked about the legal profession trying to ride a wave of change instead of being under the wave. (laughs) And, you know, there are times when they seem like they are in danger of being under the wave. (laughs) And so I think that there is a little bit of a, um, a kind of call to action here. And it's not just about caring about access to justice. It's about protecting a market. Yeah. One of the other things that, again, stood out to both of us was the point in the conversation when he referred to the need for face-to-face help for self-represented litigants. And it was kind of in the context of there is lots of information out there. And I think his point was that there's so much information, it can be very overwhelming. People don't know what to use or what to trust. And even if there is a trusted resource, it can be very dense and there might be a lot of it. And they really do need people to help point them to good resources of legal information and then you know wherever possible to kind of try to help them navigate through that which we very much agree is is really important you kind of need both pieces Pieces. of that you need good information good reliable information but you also need those people kind of pointing the way to that information and julie recommended so i was eager to take her up on the idea that i give a little plug for our current family law at the library project which Mm -hmm. i am overseeing uh, for the these couple of years in which we're working with public librarians and our local public libraries to do just that to kind of train librarians to point the public to reliable sources 
of legal information and help them to access it. And so we are doing our part there. And I think we need more of that kind of thing across across the country. Right. right. And very grateful to the Law Foundation of Ontario for their support yes, of indeed. that project. Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think it relates to this first point as well. People are going to find help wherever they can mm -hmm. find it. And that was one of, I think, David Eby's points about the profession needing to, to step up. And so people are looking online. They are even coming to their public libraries yeah. and trying to find help. And we've, we've noted over and over again at the project, both in the original research and subsequently, that the questions that we hear self-represented litigants asking, and they often bring to us, are far less often questions about the substantive law. They're far more often questions about procedure. Yeah. And the reality is that you don't need to be a lawyer to give somebody information about legal procedure. It's mm. called legal information. It's not legal advice. In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, in last week's episode, we mentioned the report on legal aid service delivery in British Columbia by Jamie McLaren, and we thought it would be worthwhile to dive into some of the 25 recommendations from that report. The recommendations deal with three main goals, better user outcomes, better user experiences, and lower system costs. These include recommendations like number two, having built-in feedback mechanisms, number three, what to include when launching an online client portal. Number 14, broadening the scope of Indigenous legal aid services to include more preventative services. Number 15, creating a child protection clinic to help parents before government intervention is necessary. Number 16, supporting continued development of Indigenous justice centers. Number 18, funding legal aid clinics, which provide specific poverty law services. And number 22, creating an experimental criminal law office along a major transit route in Metro Vancouver. We advise anyone interested in legal aid reform, whether in BC or anywhere else in the country, to read through the full report, or at least the six-page executive summary, which provides a brief description of each of the 25 recommendations. For convenience, certain recommendations are also marked as higher priority or highest priority. Thank you, Jamie McLaren, for the wealth of information contained in the reports. For our second news story, the Law Foundation of Ontario recently launched a new website for Ontario's Family Law Limited Scope Services Project. The project's aim is to improve access to family justice for middle and lower income Ontarians by increasing the use of limited scope retainers. The project facilitates access to and use of unbundled services through the creation of a province-wide roster of trained lawyers willing and able to provide such services. Unbundled services are something we've talked about at the NSRLP before, and we're glad to see more awareness about this service model. In fact, NSRLP has its own database of legal professionals who offer unbundled services and legal coaching. The NSRLP database includes family law, but also areas like civil matters, personal injury, real estate, human rights, and others. We've also included professionals from every province. If you know of other legal professionals who offer these services, let us know. Third, in case you missed it, NSRLP released a brand new primer which outlines instructions on how SRLs can obtain access to court transcripts around the country. This primer is a compilation of information obtained from court websites, 
telephone and email conversations with court services or transcript services at different courthouses, and from speaking to legal professionals in each jurisdiction. We will endeavor to keep this primer up to date, and we hope that this will make things easier for SRLs trying to navigate the legal system. Lastly, following up on Julie's new blog on sexual violence, we wanted to announce that there's an open letter and GoFundMe campaign to support Julie in her current legal battle. Julie has spoken out about non-disclosure agreements when employees are terminated for sexual misconduct. In one specific instance, a former faculty member at the University of Windsor was terminated for sexual misconduct and rehired somewhere else because the new employer was unable to determine the reason for dismissal. Julie spoke up to protect students and is now being sued for defamation. If you're able to contribute to Julie's GoFundMe campaign, we encourage you to do so. And if you can't, you can still sign the letter telling the University of Windsor to support Julie in her legal battle. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Siddhika Jessa on homophobia.